0: If you have a Bible, you can turn in it to Jonah, the book in the Bible, one of the s- small books toward the end. We're going to be going through Jonah, first chapter today. I started reading this <clears throat> Jonah in February, and I, I just fell in love with the book, and uh, again and just. Wonderful to spend time in the Word. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Not because his message is insignificant, but because of the size of the book. Many of us have learned about Jonah when we were young. Jonah is chiefly remembered for running away from God and being swallowed by a big fish. Not only that, but his mission is unique because Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament called to go to a foreign nation and preach God's message against it. That was unprecedented. Jonah was a prophet. What are the marks of a prophet? Look at your handout that I gave you. Ken, would you read number one? He was called by God. And basically, what that's saying is it was not self-initiated. Number two, Steve, can you read that one? He speaks in God's name, so he could boldly proclaim, it Yes. Basically, what that says is he was God's spokesman. <coughs> Terry, could you do number three? His message uh, must not contradict uh, other revelations. Correct. Sam, number four. Amen. And Mario, number five. Identification uh, authenticated by miracle signs, and wonders, such as Moses <coughs> parting the Red Sea or Elijah calling down fire in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. So basically, these prophets were authenticated and identified by their miracles. Jonah's name means dove, and his hometown is Gathippur, which is about three miles from. Nazareth. I want to ask you a question. Sam, can a Christian backslide? Mario, can a Christian backslide? I think so. Tito, can a Christian backslide? Oh, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yes, Jonah is a backslidden prophet. <laughs> And I want to explain that backsliding doesn't happen overnight. It is a process. Backsliding is not just falling backwards, it is failing to go forward spiritually. I'm going to say it again. Backsliding is not just falling backwards, it is failing to go forward spiritually. You cannot stand still in the Christian life. You cannot stand still. You are either moving forward or you're falling backwards. You're either progressing or you're regressing now I need to clarify something here the term backslider sometimes has been used to describe unregenerate people who have made a profession for Christ and have fallen back into their old sinful lifestyles these are false professions like in Matthew 721 721 when he says depart from me you workers of iniquity I never knew you they were never born again And in this sense, the term backslider should not be used to describe an unregenerate person. They are lost, not backslidden. Now, a true regenerate, backslidden believer are those who fall back into sin temporarily or are not growing spiritually due to sin. Okay? Hebrews 12.6 tells us that if you are a child of God, you will endure discipline. So do you see the difference between the two? The book of Jonah is a wonderful book of 48 verses. It talks about God's salvation, God's forgiveness, God's provision, God's discipline, God's faithfulness, God's mercy and love, God's sovereignty, and the Great Commission. It teaches us to look ahead how God saved the world through the one who called himself the ultimate Jonah. I was, wow, Matthew 12, 41. In the first half of the book, Jonah plays the part of the prodigal son of Jesus's parable in Luke 15, where he comes from his father and disobeys his rules. In the second half of the book, Jonah plays the part of the older brother, who obeys his father, but berates him for his graciousness to repentant sinners. Neither son trusted his father's love. Both had hidden ulterior motives. One did it by disobeying all of the father's rules. The other one did it by obeying all of the father's rules. But they are both in different ways running from God. The parable ends with a question from the father to the pharisaical son, just as in the book of Jonah, it ends with a question to the pharisaical prophet. I would like to start at the beginning of this book and take my time. I am in no rush, and I was going to do all four chapters at once. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to do one chapter at, at a time, and that's it. And so that's what I'm going to do. So today is a very simple message about Jonah and backsliding. And I I just pray that you men will take this to heart because it can happen. And I want us to look at this prophet and what happened to him and how God can use him to speak to us today. Three simple points. The disobedience to the word the downward way and the deplorable witness. Okay, let's start with verse 1 through 3. I forgot my glasses. Ken, can you read that for me while I get my glasses? From the presence of the Lord. why why did Jonah a prophet of God blatantly disobey the word of God he is given a mandate he is commissioned by God to go to Nineveh and preach against it there is a sense of urgency when you look at the words arise go Jonah is a man of God a believer who disobeyed God's will but before you judge him and criticize him haven't you disobeyed God? Haven't you done something against God's will? Let's be honest. We all have done something against God's will. But what I look here and see, God called a specific person to go to a specific place for a specific purpose. A specific person to go to a specific place for a specific purpose. And in God's infinite wisdom, He called Jonah. God said, Jonah, to- God told Jonah, go. Jonah said, no. God told Jonah, go east to Nineveh. Jonah went west to Tarshish. God said, go out and cry against this city. Jonah went on a sea cruise. That is disobedience. And I believe Jonah is the only prophet who refused God's commission. But you know what I noticed here? I want you to notice something. God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his will. God could have sent Isaiah. In Isaiah 6.8, he says, uh, um, "He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah replied, here I am, send me. He could have sent Amos, who was a prophet, at the same time as Jonah. God used Moses to deliver three million people. God used the apostles who were uneducated and fishermen to turn the world upside down. God used Jeremiah, who was very young, 16, and timid to be a prophet. God used an old man, Abraham, to have a son at 100 years old to be the father of all nations. God doesn't choose famous, larger-than-life people to do His will. God chooses everyday, normal people with weaknesses so that no man can boast in the presence of God. Jonah was running from God. He disobeyed God's commission and went in the opposite direction. Isn't it the job of a prophet or a preacher to to preach? Isn't it? Yeah, Steve does it every Sunday. R.C. Sproul says that the expression, now the word of the Lord is used some 112 times in the Old Testament to describe the giving of a divine message to a prophet. Jonah is probably the worst prophet in the Old Testament. Wow, that is not something you want to have. The worst prophet in the Old Testament. He had a bad attitude. This is the opposite of a Christ-like attitude. He's being selfish instead of being selfless. Do you know why Jonah rebelled and defied God's mandate? Jonah hated the Assyrians. Jonah despised them. The Assyrians were Israel's enemies. And Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. After capturing their enemies, they would go and cut off their legs and one arm, leaving one arm left so that they could go shake it in a mockery against them before they died. They forced the families and friends to walk around with their loved ones' decapitated heads on poles and parade around. They stretched out prisoners' tongues and, and stretched out their bodies so that they could flay them. I don't know if you ever saw that movie with Mel Gibson uh, where he portrayed William Wallace in uh, the movie Braveheart. They did that. The Assyrians burned children alive, they were terrorists. And this is the reason that Jonah hated them. He was a racist. What is a racism? It is the belief that one's own race is superior to others. And it is a learned sin. You weren't born with it. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? I was looking at it last week. talks about racism. Yet this was the nation that God chose to to, uh, speak to. And what's even more shocking to Jonah is that the God of Israel would warn Nineveh. Of impending judgment. This made absolutely no sense to Jonah. He was intensely patriotic. He was a nationalist. He was a proud Hebrew. And he had a big problem because he couldn't understand God's reason for preaching to these wicked Ninevites. Jonah doubted God's goodness, wisdom, and justice. And we've all had that experience. When something devastating happens, uh, we get news that a family member has tra- uh, cancer or has tragically died, we're like, Where's God's goodness? What happened? Or when we despair because we get laid off from a job and we have to go find another job. What's God doing? Uh, when a romantic relationship crashes and burns, it's like, oh, no, what happened? Or when something bad happens, like the Santa Rosa fires or the uh, fires up in paradise where the whole town almost burned down, it's like, where's God? How, how is this God's will? Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. When God said in Genesis 2, 16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But it says in Genesis 3, 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. God had given no reason as to why it would be wrong to eat from that one tree. So Adam and Eve decided, just like Jonah, that if they couldn't think of a good reason for the command of God, there there couldn't be one. In other words, what they're saying, God couldn't be trusted to have their best interests in mind. So they ate. And Jonah has a problem with God's mercy, a theological problem, but it's also a heart problem. Jonah wants a God of his own making. He wants a God who simply destroys the bad people, the Ninevites, and blesses the good people. Israel. It's kind of like us. God, when we get to the table, God bless us for no more. You know? You ever? So, turn to Jonah 4, verse 1 and 2. We're going to jump ahead here. for, And I'm going to explain why Jonah disobeyed God. Jonah 4. Verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is Jonah saying? He's saying, I don't believe it. I I knew this was going to happen. I knew knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to be gracious and merciful to them, slow to anger, abounding in love, and now you're not going to judge them. Jonah knew God very well. He knew God very well. And he wanted Nineveh to be judged. He hated them. (coughs) Jonah cannot see his own sin, that he is living by the mercy of God. Mercy is something that I do deserve judgment, but I don't receive. Jonah doesn't see that he is no better than the Assyrians. He doesn't understand how God can be merciful to evil people and still at the same time be just. Jonah is being disobedient because of his self-righteousness. There's a story in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee gets up to pray and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, just, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, that Pharisee was spiritually arrogant. He had spiritual pride, and he's blind to his sin, just like Jonah was blind to his own sin. So the first point here is the disobedience to the word. Second of all, the next point is the downward way. I want you to notice the downward trajectory of disobedience. Starting at verse 3. And he went down to Joppa. And then go to verse 5. And the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he'd laid down and was fast asleep. And then lastly, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him. And then in parentheses, I put down into the sea. Jonah, you have to take him and throw him down. So Jonah's going down. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the seaport, down to the ship, down to the sleeping area, down into the water, down into the big fish and down to the bottom of the sea. Down and down, Jonah, Jonah goes. And that's what happens sometimes as a Christian. Jonah is a respected prophet, useful, and then all of a sudden he starts spiraling downward into uh, disobedience and uselessness. There is a danger of backsliding. Hebrews 3:12 says, "Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God." It's a downward way, And a lot of times when we have a crisis in our life, we have to make a decision. It's called an anxiety provoking event. And it causes people anger and anxiety like death or something. Some conflict that creates anger and anxiety. What's the reaction? We learned this many years ago. The reaction is either to fight or flight. And that's what Jonah is doing. He's trying to run from God. But this is dangerous because it creates distance with our fellowship with God. And secondly, you can't run from God. God is omnipresent. What does that mean? everywhere psalm 139 8 if i ascend to the heaven you are there if i make my bed in hell you are there if i take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the earth even there your hand will lead me god is everywhere you can't run from god i will never forget the pastor who discipled me his name was jeff tache he was a dynamic minister and a charismatic preacher He was zealous for the Lord. Him and his wife came out here to San Jose, just the two of them, and they started a small church. And then within about three years, it grew to about 300 people. They started these small New Testament-style churches that met in people's homes, and they had like 12 of them, many in the San Jose area, uh, some in in San Francisco, some in... uh, um, Milpitas, and even in uh, Fairfield, where I lived. And our little small church grew. It grew and grew. And he would come down on his motorcycle and and, and preach. And then people were getting saved. And he'd drive back uh, to San Jose. But my pastor began to drift. He began fellowshipping with a brother in Marin that the elders told him not to have any fellowship with. He ignored them. And eventually he decided, decided to leave the church in 1983. The next time I saw him was six years later. And he changed. He looked really old. His hair was in a ponytail and some of his teeth were missing. He, he told me that he had been addicted to cocaine and speed. And he had lost weight. He entered a drug rehab and was, was now clean drug-free, but he paid a huge price, huge price. He lost his family. He lost his position. He lost his employment, but he also lost his fellowship that he had with God, that close relationship. A few years after after that, I was told that he had been stabbed to death and bled out over a drug deal gone bad. What happened to this zealous preacher? He defied the Lord, he departed the church, he disobeyed the word, and he drifted into that downward cycle. Do you see the dangerous downward spiral? Sin takes away your joy. Sin ruins your family and loved ones. Sin breaks our fellowship with God. Sin brings you down. Sin brings you down. Even when you think nobody is looking, nobody's watching, sin brings you down. Lot was ruined because of sin in Genesis verse 12. Lot didn't know that his worldliness and greed would lead him to lose his wealth and his children and his wife. The Bible says Lot was a righteous man, but his greed and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches brought him down. Sin down. God on many occasions had to send prophets to the uh, people of Israel to repent from their backsliding. Israel was in sin. They were falling into immorality and idolatry. Amos two four says that Israel despised the law, the Torah. Israel was God's chosen people. She had a unique relationship with God. She was chosen for a definite purpose to be a light to this world. Who else has that responsibility? And this privilege created a greater responsibility. God sent the prophet Amos to preach judgment. I'm going to read Amos chapter 4. Is the trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Oh, chapter 4. And I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Cleanness of teeth means they didn't eat, so their teeth didn't get dirty. And lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7. I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain and the other uh, would not rain. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locust devoured. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. God is going to judge them because of their disobedience. Jonah represents Israel. He is a backslidden prophet. And Israel was a backslidden nation because of their disobedience. The title of this message is The Ugly Side of Backsliding. Backsliding is ugly. Jonah is backsliding. So when he runs from God, So he runs from God. When Noah got drunk and backslid, it was ugly. When Samson backslid with Delilah, it was ugly. When Gehazi backslid with greed, it was ugly. When Achan backslid with sin, it was ugly. When Peter denied Christ and cursed, it was ugly. Matthew 26, 58. But Peter followed him at a distance. When David, the greatest king of Israel, who defeated Goliath with a slingshot and wrote many of the psalms backslid with Bathsheba it was ugly and I just wanted to point out that if David, a man after God's own heart can backslide shouldn't that be a warning to you? David became casual with sin then careless then carnal and then ultimately callous to the point of committing murder casual, careless, carnal and callous that is the downward way. Sin causes you to drift, disobey and go in the downward way. And today I believe many Christians are following Christ at a distance. 1. The disobedience to the word. 2. The downward way. And lastly, the deplorable witness. Verse 4 through 17. I'm going to read this whole chapter the rest. But the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his god, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, "What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out on your god. Perhaps the god you give, the, the perhaps the god will give a thought to us that we may not perish." and made vows and the last verse there and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights the deplorable witness of Jonah this storm is immediate and supernatural as soon as Jonah boards the ship a great storm picks up and when it says verse right there in verse 4 that the, the Lord hurled that word hurled is the same word used in 1 Samuel 18.11 when Saul hurled a javelin at young David. So this storm is supernaturally sent by God. And it's a vivid picture of God launching this mighty tempest into the sea around Jonah's boat. And that that word that it says, the great wind, is the same word used to describe Nineveh in verse 2. That great city. It's a great wind. Listen to me. Sometimes God sends storms into our lives to get our attention. God used the baby's death to get David's attention. God used leprosy to get Gehazi's attention. God is not a respecter of persons. All sin has a storm attached to it. The Bible doesn't teach that every difficulty is the result of sin. It's not always because of sin, but it does teach that sin will bring you difficulty. And I want you to notice the contrast between the pagan sailors and the prophet of God. In the very beginning, the sailors were terrified. Where's Jonah? He's sound asleep, not concerned. The sailors are alert. They can tell the ship's going to break up. Jonah is out of touch. He doesn't doesn't really care. The sailors seek the common good. Jonah, self-absorbed. The sailors pray to their own God versus Jonah who doesn't pray at all. He doesn't even pray that God stop the storm. The sailors cast lots to find out whose fault it is. Jonah admits it's his own fault. The sailors hur- hurl over the cargo to try and lighten the load. Jonah says, throw me overboard. The sailors fear the Lord exceedingly. Jonah doesn't fear the Lord at all. The sailors become spiritually awake and get saved. Jonah is spiritually asleep. Jonah is a horrible witness. Isn't it interesting, though, that God, during the casting of lots, to find out who the guilty person is, the lot fell on Jonah? Because God arranged that. When Jonah is found out and he can't hide, he finally confesses, I am a Hebrew, and uh, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So the sailors recognize that this deadly, deadly storm is all Jonah's fault. And they had to throw over a lot of their cargo. That was their wages. Jonah has... They, you, you say you fear the Lord? Really? Your words and your life don't match up. You fear the Lord? Jonah has lost all credibility. Jonah is a deplorable witness. And you know what's ironic? The whole reason of this because Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach God's message to the pagan sa- uh, people. And yet... Here on the boat, he ends up sharing about the the Lord, Yahweh, and God's message, and they get saved. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what ends up happening. The sailors see the greatness of who God really is. What amazes me, though, is you can have the right theology, you can have sound doctrine, you can worship the one true God, you can be a prophet, and you can still be disobedient. That's amazing. A prophet or a preacher can operate in the flesh. That is a poor witness. Jonah was a poor witness. We've been uh, studying the church of Corinth in in 1 Corinthians. The church was a poor witness. What were some of the troubles in in Corinth, Steve? Division. Division. What's another one? Adultery. Adultery. What's the other one? Immorality. Immorality. Uh, Jealousy and strife. One of the big things Steve's been talking about, a lack of unity, abusing the Lord's Supper, sexual immorality that even the Gentiles didn't condone. That's bad when the Gentiles don't even approve of it. That is bad. They were a bad witness. There's another example of Eli's son. They were such a bad witness that in 1 Samuel 2.22, it says they laid with the religious prostitutes and were taking the burnt offering by force. And you know what happened? God took him. I heard about a pastor who would go to the stores, switch the prices on the shirts, so he wouldn't have to pay as much. What a deplorable witness. Jonah was a bad witness. And you know what's even worse? You know what his legacy is going to be? He will always be remembered as the prophet who disobeyed and ran away from God. And at the end here, God deals with backsliders in four ways. The first way is conviction. And I'm telling you, if you are saved, you are born again, and you're committing sin, God's going to convict you. This is the best time right here to get right with God. When God tells you, that was wrong. That's right, the best time right there to, to get right with God. The second way is chastisement. God will discipline you and chastise you. The Greek word for discipline is padeo. And it means child training or discipline. The word scourging refers to flogging with a whip, which was severe and a painful beating that was common in Jewish practice. God's discipline and scourging is given to help us, not to harm us. Can you say amen? The third way is confrontation. As in Nathan confronted David in 2 Samuel 12, or when Jesus confronted Peter in Matthew 16, when he says, Get behind me, Satan. That's confrontation. And confrontation is an art. You have to do it the right way. And sometimes it's very difficult to do. But God will confront you. And it might not even be with the pastor. It might be with your wife, who 90% of the time it is. Your friend, a radio, a, a book, a sermon, or even a church. When you have to do church discipline, you have to excommunicate somebody. That's confrontation. And then the last way that God deals with backsliders is consummation, 1 John 5.16. And this is referring to physical death, not spiritual death. I want to make that really clear. Let's, let, matter of fact, let's turn to it. 1 John 5.16, right before Revelation. First John 5.16 if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. What is John saying? There is a point you can't go beyond because God might call you home. The apostle saying that you can commit a sin which will lead God to take you home. Are you listening to me? God can remove you from this physical life because you are disgracing him. And I believe that's what happened with my pastor. And I never realized it, but when I was preparing this, I I realized Moses. Moses was taken home after he struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it. And I didn't put those two together. And Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied in Acts 5, God took them. And there are... Even in 1 Corinthians 11.30, some of the believers in, in uh, Corinth, and that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, I need to be careful here because I'm not saying if you take communion and you didn't confess something that God's automatically going to zap you. I, I don't want you to get that impression that, oh, oh no, you know, I, I can't take communion. No, with this... Is, you have to take it in context and, and it was talking about the believers uh, lacking the unity and causing division and, and committing sins that were against the body of Christ so that's how you have to interpret that verse you have to be careful but the point is God judges believers so what is causing you to backslide what do you need to throw overboard to get right with God the most miserable person is not a lost person the most miserable person is a man out of fellowship with God Psalms 32 for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer remember the hot days we had last week are you out of fellowship with God this morning proverbs 14 14 says a backslider is filled in heart is filled with his own ways is God trying to get your attention somehow In ending, I want to tell you about the man who wrote this poem called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven is a poem written by Francis Thompson and published in 1893. The poem focuses on the pursuit of a sinner by a loving God, and it's written in a classic style. And J.R. Tolkien, who's the author of Lord of the Rings, said the poem was one of the most profound expressions of mature spiritual Experience, And I had never read it before. Very powerful. <clears throat> Francis Thompson lived from 1859 to 1907. He was from a wealthy family, and he graduated from Owens College as a doctor, but he never practiced medicine. He moved to London instead to become a writer. Unfortunately, he became a homeless opiate addict. Opium addict. And he was living under a bridge on the streets of London. This didn't work out for him. He couldn't find a job with a magazine or anything. He ended up selling newspapers and matches on the streets. And that didn't work out for him either. This went on for years. And he got sicker and sicker, and his heartache grew and grew. His parents were and they loved God. And he was doing all he could. To run away from God and the expectations of his parents. And in his ache for significance, he encountered the relentless love of God, the eternal one, the all knowing, sovereign God, the one true God. One day, he found an old pencil and a scrap piece of paper on the street, and he wrote an epic poem about his personal journey. And he sent it to this magazine where a husband and wife managed that magazine. They read the poem, and immediately they knew this poem was a masterpiece. They went out and tried to find him. They tracked him down, tried to clean him up, even brought him into their house. They put him in a place where he could detox because he was still addicted to opium. He lived for 19 years before dying from tuberculosis at the age of 47. He went on to become one of the greatest poets in England, and J.R. Tolkien said his poem was part of his inspiration for Lord of the Rings. I'm going to read a small section of it to you, and then I'm going to comment. It begins like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him an under running laughter. Up hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Down titanic glooms of chasm fears, for those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic intimacy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee. Who betrayest me? God is saying, You turn from me, little human, you hurt you. And then verse 51 not shelters thee who wilt not shelter me god says you will find no rest if you push me away verse 110 lo not contents thee who contentest not me god says if i'm not happy you're not happy and right at the end verse 171 all which i took from thee i did but take not for thy harms but just that thou mightest seek it in my arms god explains that what he took from the speakers The pleasures of the world that led him in the wrong direction were not intended to hurt him, but rather to help him find the right path. The speaker describes his journey of running from a loving God in order to enjoy the pleasures of the world. The speaker believes that submitting to God meant giving up his happiness. But God tells him that 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 happiness that you tried to seek by running away was following you the whole time. I don't know where some of you are with Christ. But God has something to say to all of us. You can't run from God. Some of you are running from God. Some of you are running to God. Some of you are running with God. And some of you are running behind God. Maybe you're mad at God. Wherever you are, God wants you to stop running and to get right with Him. You will find no rest if you push Him away. Will you turn around and get right with God? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men here today, this morning. I thank you, God, for them bearing with me through this message. I pray, God, that you would show us, God, what we really need to do. God, Stop playing around, God, to spend some time on our knees to confess and do the right thing. Abandon these besetting sins, Lord, that bring us down. I pray, God, that we would Just turn our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I pray, God, we would seek you, God, and not try to run from you anymore like Jonah. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see what you have in store for us. I pray, God, you be glorified in our lives. And tomorrow I pray for each and every man here that we would just be the example, God, you've called us to be. Pray we could be lights, and salt on the earth. Pray God you be glorified. Be with us tomorrow as we come to worship you. In Jesus' name, and all the people said, Amen. Amen.